Hello, and welcome to episode 1191 of Effectively Wild, the Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I am Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs, joined, as usual, by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. I should say that with more enthusiasm. Joined, as usual, by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Hello, Ben. Hello. There is a new development in Scott Boris Boatgate. We have a new extension to the analogy i'm not going to try to recount the first one because it was so long and nonsensical but it was about how this winter's free agent market is what like the america's cup or something uh i don't even know i i've already put it out of my mind it didn't make much sense we tried to break it down so now there's a new boat analogy this one Courtesy of recent guest Megan Montemuro, who wrote about Jake Arrieta at The Athletic Philadelphia. So this is the Boris quote in this new article. In a marketplace where you have 30 boats in the blue lake of free agency, and maybe as many as 12 are no longer fishing, and the other five have determined that the gas tax is too great, we're left with a free agent model that's non-competitive. All the best for those who chose to be competitive, but it certainly creates an irregularity in the system. Wait, okay, let's, okay, I have, I had not read this, so I'm trying trying to break this down live. (laughs) What, so there's just, there's boats in the water. Yes, this time it's a lake. Last time it was an ocean, right? Also, we're sailing all over the world last time. Blue Lake, completely needless detail. We can assume (laughs) it's a blue lake. It's a lake. So there's 30 boats in the lake, right? Right. Uh, 12 of them are not fishing? Yes, maybe as many as 12, no longer fishing. Right. And five of them are just are not operational because of the gas? Yeah, the gas tax. <laughs> it's too <Okay>. great. <laughs> so, so I don't understand. What are the free agents in this metaphor? <laughs> so I assume that the 12 boats that are not fishing are just teams that are not currently trying to contend the five that are worried about the gas tax are worried about the competitive balance tax and just say that instead has to be the gas tax and then in theory the remaining 13 are the teams that were actually bidding on players no no no. i i get that i understand why he said that well i understand what why (laughs) he went with those things but what i don't understand is what's the action in this story what are what are these boats (laughs) supposed to be competing for if they're if you have 12 boats if this is like a fishing lake right and you have 12 17 boats that aren't fishing that means the fishing is even better for the other boats (laughs) and it also but who are the free agents well in this scene free agents are the fish there are fewer lines in the water i guess but you don't want to get caught that kills you (laughs) if you're a fish that's true. In this scenario, the free agents would want to get caught and and be exposed to the air and and uh, suffocate. So it doesn't really work, does it? Did Scott Bo- did Scott Boris come into this winter thinking with my massive commissions, I'm going to buy a new boat? Because I think that he might have boats on the mind. I mean, teams haven't been calling. I guess he's had extra time to workshop his nautical analogies. I don't know. This doesn't clear up anything at all for me. If he wanted to say that there are. A few teams actually in the market that's fine but i don't think i i didn't need the the boat imagery necessary i'm not even sure that it really makes sense if there are fewer teams fishing i mean aren't there also fewer free agents available it's a it's a weaker class and maybe it doesn't necessarily mean the bidding would be less competitive because it's not like there are usually 30 teams competing for any given free agent. So anyway, I don't know, but that's the latest. 
That's dumb. <laughs> is this better or worse than the America's No, Cup this is this is better, Japan? but only because it's not three paragraphs long <laughs> yeah. as a story. It was just wasn't so hard to go over <laughs> reading out loud. Yep. So that's the latest from Scott Boris. <laughs> it's a blue lake. There's kelp. <laughs> Rocks underneath the kelp. Yeah. Is there kelp in lakes? Uh, I don't know. Anyway. There's, there's like <laughs> plants. There's tall plants that grow in lakes. Yeah. I've been watching Blue Planet too, but free agency hasn't come up. Scott Boris has not been a guest <laughs> at all. If anything ever happens to David Attenborough, though, they should bring in Scott Boris to do the voiceovers for these things. So this is a team preview podcast, which we have not mentioned thus far, but... We will be talking to Adam Barry of MLB.com about the Pittsburgh Pirates and Ben Nicholson-Smith of Sportsnet about the Toronto Blue Jays in just a moment. I don't have too much else to banter about first, but I do want to ask you about Lucas Giolito, White Sox prospect Lucas Giolito, because we've touched on him before, I think, on podcasts. You've written about him before, and I don't want to say that you've been down on him, you have just accurately recognized what Lucas Gilito was, I think, as opposed to when he was a top prospect who is reputed to throw extremely hard. The actual reality of Lucas Gilito in the last couple of years, whether it was with the Nationals and the Majors or in the high minors, has not matched that earlier scouting report. Seems like he had just lost some stuff and was suddenly maybe more of a back-of-the-rotation, mid-rotation guy than a potential ace. But maybe things have changed. I would say that I was down on Giolito before, and he made it very easy to be down on him because I have for a long time just had a sort of a skepticism of pitchers who don't throw enough strikes. Mm -hmm. And and Giolito was supposed to have this like 80 grade fastball coming through the minors, and it just hasn't shown up in the major leagues. But Aaron Sanchez is someone who proved me wrong because he started throwing strikes. And and Lucas Giolito, I, I was just mindlessly watching a video. I didn't even set out to have my attention grabbed by Lucas Giolito. Like I didn't wake up and think I'm going to write about Giolito today, but I was looking at some video and I thought this looks a little different. He's, he's lowered his arm slot and in a way that is reminiscent to me of what James Paxton did. I was watching more video and I asked Jason Benetti, like, how is this stuff looking? Jason Benetti said, Don Cooper said he was throwing like 94, 95. There's good secondary pitches. He made some of the Cubs look really silly the other day. And he seems to be a, a one of those like data gatherers with a, like a healthy appetite for information. So mm-hmm. I think that Giolito is is open. He's, uh, he's open-minded. He's young. He's still talented. His velocity seems to be up and I am excited. And I don't know if that makes me a a flip-flopper, but on the other hand, Lucas Giolito was not a stable static asset, if you will. He mm-hmm. is changing, and I think that this time it looks like he is changing for the better, so that makes me happy. Yeah, I think it's fair to flip-flop. I mean, I suppose you could say that the scout's job is to project the long-term player, what he's going to be, and I would imagine that scouts flip-flop too. We don't necessarily have access to their scouting reports, but I'm going to guess that a pro report filed on Giolito last year was not as glowing as an amateur report filed on Giolito before the draft, for instance. So I think that happens. I mean, there are some guys who maybe their velocity is down, but if you're 
perceptive, you can say, well, he'll get it back at some point, but it's never really a solid bet to expect someone who has lost speed to regain speed. That doesn't generally happen. So maybe more common for someone who's his age, as opposed to, say, someone like Justin Verlander, who is an outlier in being able to gain velocity after having lost some despite being in his mid-30s. But yeah, it's nice to know that he is back to being a promising pitcher again. Separately, uh, but also related to spring training, I would like to bring your attention to something. We talked about Ronald Acuna in the previous podcast to talk about how he's improved at every level. And you pointed out that he's even improved his OPS in spring training because his OPS had shot up to 1.130. Well, I will have you know that his OPS in spring training is currently 1.217 because he went one for two with a home run on Thursday. So Ronald Acuna continues to get better every single day, which... (laughs) Incidentally, it could be the theme of an email question we haven't received. What would we do with a player who gets better every single day, and when would we notice? Yeah, that's right. I just went to MLB.com before we started recording just to see if there was anything notable we should talk about. And one of the top articles on the news page is about how Ronald Acuna is a future Hall of Famer, according to former Atlanta player Ralph Garr, who says that uh, he's in a group with Aaron and Trout and Harper and uh, anyway, not surprising that he's drawing that kind of comp, but yeah, the uh, the hype is building by the day. <laughs> there's a there's another MLB.com headline here on the front page that I just looked at, and it says, "quote Can the best get even better?" Leandor thinks so. Now I haven't read this article. I haven't clicked the link. But if this is just a question, like, did somebody go up to Francisco Lindor and ask, could you be better? Because I don't think that that I don't think that's an objective source. I think that maybe you should you No, know, you just shouldn't ask that. It's a, not an interesting. I, everybody is desperate to find something to write about right now, because all okay. anyone is trying to do is pretend that they're not all thinking about Ronald Acuna as a major leaguer. <laughs> yeah. Mike Trout has already proven repeatedly that the best can be better. So... <laughs> All right. Well, I guess we can actually wrap this thing up and have a preview podcast that is not an hour and 40 minutes long for once. So that's all right. Do you uh, think that there are like two high profile free agents remaining, right? They're really just like two top 50 types still on the board, Alex Cobb and Greg Holland. It seems like they will both sign sometime soon, although the rumor market has been or the rumor mill has been pretty slow for both of them. Is there like a an obvious destination that you would predict for either or a place that would benefit from either or both? I don't have a clue who is going to sign Greg Holland because he is yeah. attached to compensation. Teams don't like to give that up for one year deals, but yeah, I, they both are both qualifying offer. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about the, uh, about Cobb, and I I still expect, as I think I mentioned the other day, I expect that Cobb is just going to sign for what Lance Lynn signed for. Was Lance Lynn also a qualifying offer guy? Yes. Yeah. Well, whoops. So <laughs> I guess there's there's really no reason not to just give Cobb the Lynn money, and there's little reason at this point for Cobb to expect more than the Lynn money. And I I think that Cobb could help a lot of teams. He's not great but you know you, you just need a team that suffers an injury so he's he's clearly not gonna go to like the astros but you could see him uh i guess he wouldn't go to the dodge i'm not gonna go over every single team there, <laughs> there are teams that could use alex cobb and that would be easy but yeah. the greg holland is a little more difficult because in theory first of all greg holland did not have the great second half which is really one bad month last season but in any case greg mm-hmm. holland is not at least he does not look like he is an elite 
relief pitcher, but he also presumably wouldn't want to sign somewhere where he's not going to close. But I don't think that mm-hmm. those opportunities are really out there. Now, this is a market where Fernando Rodney is going to get the close again. So, you know, their chances <laughs> are there. And people have kept connecting him to the Cardinals because they don't have a closer, but the Cardinals just don't seem to be interested. And I don't think the Cardinals would give up compensation to sign someone like Greg Collins. That one is an actual mystery to me. And I guess that you could say Angels because they have bed erosion and Parker, but they could use a more proven guy. But even I just don't see a great reasonable fit for him but he's got to go somewhere right he's not just gonna sit out no but yeah the prices on these guys have fallen so far that almost every person i mean fans of almost every team can dream about signing one of these guys even if at the beginning of the winter it wouldn't have looked like a possibility now when you look at what neil walker went for mike moustakis went for it's not really out of any team's price range so in theory if the demands drop just enough and About two weeks before opening day here, we're at the point where if a pitcher wants to be ready for opening day, he's pretty much got to get to a camp right now. So maybe one of these players just blinks and accepts some low market offer. But I think both of these guys are in the group of free agents who received bigger offers earlier in the offseason, or at least... There have been reported multi-year bigger offers, like supposedly Holland had a three-year offer from the Rockies and Cobb maybe had a three-year offer somewhere else too. I don't know if all of those reports are accurate, but they both seem to be in that camp of players who are possibly kicking themselves right now. Yeah, I think, I don't know if it's true, I haven't checked, but the rumor is that Greg Holland was offered the same contract that Wade Davis signed for by the Rockies, and then he turned it down and Davis signed for it, which is good for the Rockies because Wade Davis is better than Greg Holland is. So I don't know what they were thinking, but I guess the easiest thing to do now is to say, well, Greg Holland should go close for the White Sox because they have (laughs) money to spend and their bullpen is completely wide open, even though personal favorite Aaron Bummer is having a strong (laughs) spring training. Yeah, he's got options. But outside of that, I I just don't see a great, you know, Greg Holland probably doesn't want to go sign with the Marlins and the Marlins probably don't want to go spend money on Greg Holland. So I am glad in some ways that I'm not Greg Holland. I I (laughs) would be delighted to be Greg Holland in other ways, but this is miserable. And I feel like he in particular has been, I I think that Scott Boris has not done him any any favors this winter. This is a a particular case of, I think, agent mistake. I'm comfortable saying he's going to out-earn us wherever he ends up, but I know what you mean. All right, let's take a quick break, and we'll be back in just a moment with Ben Nicholson-Smith to talk about the Toronto Blue Jays. Time to talk about our foreign team. The, uh, the team up north, Blue Jays, who uh, coming off a pretty bad season, I would say. But we will talk about why perhaps the future looks a little more optimistic. And to talk about the Blue Jays, we are joined by Sportsnet's Ben Nicholson-Smith. Ben, hello. Hey, guys. I'm uh, I'm glad to be joining you. Effectively Wild, one of my favorite podcasts. So it's, gr- it's great to be talking Jays with you. You can suck up, but the questions aren't going to get any nicer because of it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't expect any easy questions. No, definitely not. <laughs> the Blue Jays have had a, you know, a, a fairly active offseason. They haven't done nothing, but they haven't made necessarily an enormous splash. Are you surprised that a team that last season finished 76 and 86 currently projects on Fangraphs to make the playoffs? Yeah, I am surprised by that. I think they're a little short of that, to be honest. Not that they're a bad team. I actually think they're a pretty decent team. But, you know, to, to project to make the playoffs 
I don't know. I mean, you guys would know better than me on this, how much that takes into account the schedule and, you know, the, the fact that they are going to have to face the Yankees and Red Sox to combine 38, 40 times. That's, that's going to be really tough. So to me, this team is pretty good. They've made some nice improvements. They've plugged some, some really considerable holes from last year, but pretty clearly they're the third best team in the East. And, you know, they, they have a path to the wild card. But to me, it's by no means a certainty. Yeah, I don't know if you can speak on behalf of the entire Jays fan base. I don't know whether you've been delegated to do that. But is there a feeling of like, oh, no, here we go again. The AL East is back to what it was seemingly year after year after year for about a decade before the Jays broke through and managed to upset that order of teams. But now it looks like we're back to powerhouse Yankees, powerhouse Red Sox. Blue Jays, maybe if things go well, or is there enough optimism about the next wave of young players that it's not so demoralizing to see the projected order again? Yeah, I think when it comes to the medium term to long term future, Blue Jays fans are pretty optimistic. And I think so much of that has to do with Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Bo Bichette. Even beyond that, you look at guys like Nate Pearson. I was watching him today. He's throwing 100 miles an hour, blowing it past guys. He could rise quickly. There's some real depth to this Toronto system. So there's an awareness of that depth on the part of Jays fans. And I think when they look beyond 2018, there's actually some optimism. To me, there is, though, this strain of here-we-go-again pessimism that's really tied around guys like Troy Kulowitzki because, in his case, he's injured again. Uh, There's no timeline for when he's going to return. And he's a highly paid player. And, and I think this is probably the case across sports and fan bases. But when you have someone who is making a ton of money and fans perceive him to not really be living up to that expectation, there's a ton of frustration there. So I, I do think that there is a certain amount of built up you know, angst around guys like Tulewitzki. Anytime there's an injury, you know, I, I see the mentions, hey, you know, here we go again, you know, they're these guys are, are going to go down the same path they did last year when they had so many significant injuries. But longer term, there is some, I would say, well-placed optimism. Maybe the most important thing that is happening for the Blue Jays right now, aside from Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Bo Bichette and et cetera, is that Aaron Sanchez is pitching in spring training and he's been able to pitch on his regular schedule. I know it's still early, but of course, Aaron Sanchez broke out in a huge way in 2016. He threw strikes. He did everything he was supposed to do. And last season, he was limited to only eight starts because of recurring blister problems. So what have the Blue Jays done to try to prevent that from coming back up? Basically, we, we've we seen like a rash, it feels like, of blister-related playing time missed across the league. So what have the Blue Jays done to help Aaron Sanchez get past what really ruined a very vital sophomore starting season. Yeah, completely ruined last year and such a frustrating season for Sanchez, for the Blue Jays. It's funny, what they did last year was in hindsight, and we didn't know this at the time, but in in hindsight, it looks like tampering and meddling around with a finger that probably would have healed had it been left alone. So the Blue Jays cut the nail lengthwise in two. They They were working on it. It ultimately didn't work. The, the blister reemerged. He ended up having a ligament issue, lost season. So what they tried to do to make sure that Sanchez would be ready to have a bounce back year was essentially tell him, keep it simple. Let it rest. Let it heal. Don't even pick up a baseball. So for three months, he didn't pick up a baseball. He was able to just really give it the rest that he never got the chance to have during the course of the 2017 season. And it's amazing. I mean, now 
you look at the finger, it looks like a normal finger, which, I mean, that's the, that's the baseline expectation. It shouldn't really be a shock, but compared <laughs> to what it looked like last year, I mean, it was, it was not looking good at times. So that's huge just for him to have a relatively normal finger again. And then you look at the results this spring, not that, you know, we want to go too far down the path of analyzing spring training stat lines or, or radar gun readings, but he's throwing 95 again. He's getting swings and misses. He's getting ground balls. And he says that he feels good. So this is, it has, at least to this point, it has the makings of a big bounce back season for Sanchez. Well, while we're on the subject of injuries, which was part of the Blue Jays 2017 story, if we can talk about some of the other minor to moderate injuries that have been plaguing various players in camp. We already talked about Tulo, but there have been some others that have made some guys either questionable for opening day or have just sort of sidelined them this spring, whether it's Donaldson or Steve Pierce or Marcus Stroman or Carlos Ramirez or, well, I guess we could keep going, Marco Estrada. Which of these injuries, if any, is actually concerning or might lead to lost time in games that count the stroman one is is definitely concerning and i think that until he pitches in games which he's scheduled to on saturday for the first time there is that question mark about what he's going to be able to do and how he's going to look and how long it's going to take for him to rebound from this shoulder inflammation that he's been dealing with so stroman of course someone who's come back from injuries before he's almost made a name for himself in that way like he did in 2015 when he came back from that acl this is a different kind of injury, and the Blue Jays understandably want to be cautious. He wants to push it a little more. He would have been, from what we understand, and he hasn't addressed the media so far, but from what we understand, he wanted to pitch on opening day and try to push it and, and make that happen. But in the meantime, that's somewhat of a question mark. And Josh Donaldson, too, I, I think is a question mark. He says it's an absolute non-issue. And we talked from this morning, according to everything that he's saying, his calf is totally fine. It's just a cramp. Haven't you ever had a cramp? He asked me. Okay, I've had a cramp. I get it. Not that big of a deal. But he hasn't played in almost a week. That's going to be a long time off. And again, until these guys get into games and start getting those reps, there are only a couple weeks left. So at a certain point, you do have to get in there. When Donaldson does start playing, how much is his contract, his impending free agency going to be a storyline throughout this season? Is it one of those cases where the player just says, okay, that's it. We had our chance to talk about an extension, but now the season started and that's over. Or is there some chance that something could potentially be worked out during the season? And would there be interest in re-signing him? Or would he just have to give way to Vlad Jr. or the next wave of Blue Jays players? So there was this really bizarre sequence of events relatively early in spring training this year where Donaldson told the media that essentially he was going to move past all extension talks publicly. And from his standpoint, he was expecting to hit free agency because he had tried to discuss that with the Blue Jays and it just ultimately hadn't gotten to the point that they felt they were close enough that it was worth continuing on. And then the next day, Ross Atkins, their GM, came out and said that he was still optimistic that they would get an extension done and that it, it was just something they hadn't done yet. They, they were still um, hopeful of getting one done. To me, unless Josh Donaldson wants to sign and believes that they're close, you're not in that area where you can really have a serious discussion about it. So my expectation is that he's going to play, probably put up a five or six win season, 
and then hit free agency and probably sign with another team. So Justin Smoke last season was uh, going off Fangraph's numbers. He was worth 3.4 wins above replacement, which sent his career total to 3.7 wins above <laughs> replacement. Justin, uh, I, I was putting together a table not investigating Smoke specifically, but I'm pretty sure when I looked at it the other day, uh, what Justin Smoke just did between 2016 and 2017, I think he had the biggest ever year-to-year drop in strikeout rate for a hitter, which is also notable. So I know that uh, the Blue Jays were laughed at a little bit when they kept Smoke around before his breakout, and now he's going into his age 31 season. How much do the Blue Jays expect Smoke to repeat? Because it's really easy to look at him and and compare him to Yonder Alonso or or Logan Morrison, but you know Smoke is he's well post hype, but he he seemed like the hitter that he was supposed to become. So how good is Justin Smoke? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question, and I think if you look at Logan Morrison and how the industry seemed to value him, that would almost seem to suggest that you know for these guys who have one huge breakout season there is a lot of skepticism around whether they can, whether they can repeat it, you know, 6.5 million more than what Justin Smoke's going to make, not by all that much. So I, I think the difference though, in fairness to smoke compared to Logan Morrison is exactly what you said, Jeff, where you're looking at the strikeout rate. And especially in this era where it seems like teams are very content to let hitters strike out players. I, I think there's less stigma around the strikeout than there would have been, you know, before I, you know, started covering baseball. So that's just a general sense that I have that 20 years ago or 10 years ago, even there would have been a lot more, Hey man, like you shouldn't strike out 150 times. It's hurting the team, but now, Hey, do it, go ahead. As long as you're producing in other ways. So smoke to be able to cut down in an era where everyone else is seemingly striking out more, it's actually really impressive. And you guys would be able to speak more to this than me, but my understanding is that a strikeout rate would stabilize pretty quickly and that that might actually be an indication of a change in ability on Smoke's part. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the outfield reinforcements that could potentially be on the way at some point this season. You just wrote about this at Sportsnet. Obviously, left field, something of a question mark. Curtis Granderson is there right now. We don't really know which Curtis Granderson he's going to be. And if something does have to be done, if a change does have to be made, there are a couple guys in AAA in Anthony Alford and Teoscar Hernandez who would presumably be the reinforcements, the cavalry. So what should Jays fans expect from those guys? We'll put off the Guerrero-Bichette question for a few more minutes here. I know it's hard. <laughs> yeah, no, it definitely is. That's one of the first questions that people seem to be interested in, and rightfully <laughs> so. But as for Hernandez and Alford, you know, you have a pair of, of very talented outfielders. Hernandez is interesting because he's a guy, unlike Smoke, who strikes out a ton. And are you going to be able to produce, you know, to the extent that the Blue Jays hope he will, if he's striking out 30% or more of the time? That's, that's a tough thing to do, potentially. So he does have the power, and that's maybe the one way to offset that kind of a strikeout rate. Last year, he hit, I think it was eight home runs in a very short period of time, and he has continued to show off that power in spring. So... He's someone, as I understand the way the Blue Jays look at it, he's someone that they believe to be basically ready for the major leagues. At various times over the offseason, they spoke about him as a candidate to even step in and replace Jose Batista in right field if necessary. So he's kind of this big league ready option. But I think Alford is the guy who would, who would be seen as having a higher ceiling out of the two because Alford 
super interesting case where he played football. He was a quarterback playing division one football. And only recently did he convert to baseball full time. And since that conversion, he's gradually showing some better plate approach, even just to cite one super anecdotal example the other day from a spring training game. He falls behind in the count, works at full, fouls off a tough pitch, and takes a single the other way. So, you know, I'm sure that there are a lot of bad hitters in baseball history who have done that. But that at bat did stand out to John Gibbons, and, and it stood out to, to me as I was watching it. I think that's the sort of thing that if you're a football player straight off of the football field, that's a tough thing to do. But as he has continued to get more baseball reps, then that baseball sense has kind of complemented his athleticism to the point that you're looking at a guy who can do a lot of things on a baseball field. All right. We'll talk more about the Major League roster in a moment, I'm sure. But let's stop putting off the inevitable. I have in my hand the Baseball America Prospect Handbook for 2018 with cover boy Vlad Guerrero Jr. He is exciting. Bo Bichette is exciting. Guerrero is 18. Bichette is 20. When should Blue Jays fans expect to see these guys in the majors? And what's the latest best projection for what they're going to be I guess when they first arrive and then ultimately the hope for what they might be as peak players. Yeah. I, I think that the hope would be that they could step in relatively early in their careers and produce. And, you know, you look at guys like Raphael Devers or Cody Ballinger last year who were able to make that transition pretty impressively, almost seamlessly really. So mm-hmm. the Blue Jays being an organization that really values player development and puts a ton of thought and resources into player development my guess is they're going to try to have these guys as polished as possible when they come up. But butting against that, of course, is the fact that these guys are just producing like at, at a just insane level wherever they go. I mean, Bobochet just hitting for incredible you know, batting averages, obviously showing off incredible bat-to-ball skills there, um, showing off some power. He can run pretty well. He's playing shortstop right now. That's an impressive combination of skills. And with Vlad, he's someone who has power. Uh, tremendous power, clearly. He's got great bat-to-ball skills as well. And even the last couple of days, I've been at the Blue Jays minor league complex. And at the risk of reading too much into the tiniest of sample sizes, a spring training intra-squad game before the schedules <laughs> actually start, but I'll, I'll read into it anyway. He's someone who isn't just up there hacking. He is taking pitches very patiently. We saw that last year when he walked more than he struck out. In, um, in the Florida State League. So the question then becomes, when do they appear in the big leagues? My guess is that it's early next year, probably right around the end of April, once the Blue Jays have assured themselves that they get seven years of control rather than six. So do, I guess, do the Blue Jays deserve credit then? Because they, they seem to be in something of a, a transition period, and maybe that's a little too harsh. I mean, I know they've lost Jose Batista, but even Jose Batista seems to have lost Jose Batista more recently. So the the Blue Jays are sort of in between identities in a way, but they're they're remaining competitive. So I don't know. I guess the question of do they deserve credit for that is a little too soft, but it seems like they're they've been able to do this without bottoming out. So that that speaks well to the organization's foundation, correct? Yeah, I, I think it does. I think that when you look at where they are right now, they look to me like a pretty decent team and so if that actually comes true and they actually are a decent team then they will deserve some credit if it if it goes the way it did last year and they end up losing 86 games and they just don't have the depth to withstand any kind of injury then we might have to revisit that but right now i think when you look at the layer of prospects 
below the major league level, that's where, and obviously we haven't gotten to, to the point of projecting win totals yet, but that's where you can start to see emergence of guys like a Danny Jansen, Ryan Barucki, um, Teoscar Hernandez and Alford, who we talked about. I just think that there's, and, and this isn't my opinion, but this is just based on people who watch these guys closely and, and assess talent for a living. Those people seem to think that that layer of prospects can really make an impact pretty soon. And if that's the case, then this team won't have to rely exclusively on the guys who are currently on the 25-man roster. You wrote not long ago about Devon Travis, who has been an intriguing player, a productive player at times, but also one who has spent a lot of time on the disabled list. And he seems to be healthy now. And I guess you're not going to be able to project his ability to stay healthy any more than any of us is. But what has he done differently, if anything, to try to stay on the field this year? Yeah, with Travis, it's really been a grind for him the last few years because he's dealt with, I don't know if this is the right term, but at least from the outside looking in, it seems like chronic knee issues. Year after year, he's battled knee soreness and had to have surgery. So the first step for him was just getting back to full strength and and getting to the point where he could run. And he's at that point now, he's moving pretty well. So that's that's really good for his standpoint. Uh, Mentally, he seems to be doing a lot better. And physically, you can see the improvement compared to where he was even a few weeks ago when he hadn't really started running. So that's huge for him. But the real test ultimately is going to come once games start because the Blue Jays have really been cautious about the way that they've eased Travis in to spring training. They haven't tried to play him back to back too often. If anything, they've taken him off some of the longer road trips, tried to make sure that he's only playing about once every couple of days because if they use him too hard in spring, they run the risk that by the time the season starts, he won't be ready. And I think even in a good case scenario for the Blue Jays, you're not talking about a guy who's going to play 140 games. Maybe I'll be proven wrong and and he'll go out there and do that. But more realistically, you probably are looking at a guy who's at some point going to need a breather, just given his history of knee troubles and the wear and tear that it takes to get out there and play every single day. And really, that's where those additions of young Garibas Solarte come in, Aledmus Diaz come in, because Chances are, between Tulowitzki and Devin Travis, the Jays are really going to need some help up the middle. So with, uh, with Stroman currently somewhat hurt, and of course Aaron Sanchez justified injuries throughout last season, Jaime Garcia has an extended track record of injury problems. The, the Blue Jays have a, a solid, stable-looking starting five, but there are question marks about all of them. And so the Blue Jays are not unlike every other team that is going to need probably to rely on at least some manner of starting rotation depth. At present, what is that depth? Is it is it just Joe Biagini, or is there are there levels beyond him that you think the Blue Jays could count on to to step in and deliver three or four quality starts if they needed to? The depth beyond Biagini, because he definitely is the the first guy, and he's he's likely to start the season in the rotation for them. Beyond that, you're looking at Ryan Barucki, a prospect who rose from High A all the way to Triple A last year, uh, but he only has one start at Triple A. So my guess is that the Blue Jays are hoping he can really do well for a couple months and then he becomes an option. I don't think that, I mean, I'm not sure that it's all that fair to go to a guy after one AAA start and say, hey, you're going to be in the big league rotation right now, you know, especially for someone with development left ahead of him. So he would be one option. Thomas Pannone, a guy they acquired last summer in a trade for for Joe Smith with Cleveland would be another option. But realistically, I mean, when, when you lay it out like that, there's their depth isn't great still. And that's why the addition of Garcia was key. 
I think really it was necessary to not have to have Joe Biagini in that opening day starting five. But when you look at Estrada, you know, he's, he's been pretty healthy the last few years. Jay Happ has been healthy too. But beyond that, as you said, there are some questions there. And that's really a huge part of the reason that the Blue Jays season went so poorly last year. I mean, we saw a lot of Casey Lawrence and Nick Tepesh, and I don't think the Jays want to see that again. Well, speaking from the perspective of someone who likes the Mariners, we also saw a lot of Casey Lawrence, so I guess that that makes us twins. <laughs> because we just dealt with our rotation, we might as well deal with the bullpen. And looking at the bullpen, I I like Roberto Osuna as a closer. A lot of people like Roberto Osuna as a closer, but it gets a little gets a little strange when you get past Osuna. It doesn't look like the deepest bullpen. The Jays have tried to patch this. They've signed Jake Petrica to a minor league contract. John Axford's around on a minor league contract. They even signed... Sung Huano, who the Rangers signed and then unsigned because of his medicals. He apparently was able to pass those tests in Canada. So what's the hierarchy of the Blue Jays bullpen behind Ozuna? Because as good as Biagini has been out there, as you said, he's going to be used as a starting pitcher and he can't really cover two needs at once. Yeah, man, when you lay it out like that, the bullpen doesn't seem so good. Um, yeah, so I think you've got Roberto Osuna, definitely the, the main guy. Sang is someone that they really like and could conceivably bounce back, I think, based on um, looking at some of his numbers from the last couple of seasons. However, he has a visa issue and hasn't pitched yet, so not exactly on the fast track to, to readiness for the season there. A couple weeks ago, of course. Then you've got Ryan Tapera a guy who emerged in a big way last year. And I think essentially he would be among those high leverage options. Danny Barnes, uh, another right-hander who they've relied on in the past and really had a nice year last year. Then you've got Aaron Loop from the left side and likely Don Axford is going to be on his team. So they really like what they've seen from him. He's throwing hard. We've all seen over the years that Axford isn't always around the strike zone as much as he would like to be, but he has been very effective so far using a two-seamer more these days and getting some ground balls, which they like. So I think Axford will be in the mix. Beyond that, it's pretty much an open question for the seventh reliever, and it looks like they are going to go seven as opposed to eight or even more relievers. So it looks like there's one spot up for maybe a Tyler Clippard. Maybe you've got Luis Santos in that mix, Al Albuquerque. So you're definitely into the territory of non-roster invitees. I think we're going to see at least a couple non-roster guys make this team's opening day bullpen. Wanted to ask about Randall Gritchuk, whom the Blue Jays acquired this winter. He's always been an interesting guy, and I'm kind of looking forward to seeing what he can do if he's just given this job and, and a long leash, because he never really had that in St. Louis. It seemed like he was someone who just sort of kept getting methenied and didn't really fit in with the Cardinals' mold offensively. And he's a guy who strikes out a lot, and there was a period where he was trying to cut down on his strikeouts and be more selective, and that seemed to hurt him. And then he was better once he went back to just taking hacks so is he just going to be left alone finally to be himself and just kind of let it rip and strike out a lot and hit some homers and finally get a full season's worth of major league plate appearances for the first time i think so i mean barring some sort of disastrous six weeks or eight weeks out of the gate i really think that he's going to get that chance because they brought him in knowing that he strikes out a ton and knowing that you know, there's, there's some upside here. If you look at someone with the speed to be a good defender, uh, experience in center field even, but he'll play right um, in Toronto. 
and you've got power there. So I think that combination of skills could really lead to him being a two or three win player. I, I mean, you guys tell me if I, if you think that's crazy. I, I think that, you know, within the realm of, yeah, like, hey, this could, this could happen. And if he goes out there, this is where I, I do think some patience is maybe required with these guys who strike out, whatever it is, 25, 30, 33% of the time, because it can be so frustrating to watch. And if they go out there and they aren't really being tested on defense because, you know, for whatever reason, they don't get the chance to show off their defensive skills. They're not connecting on the mistake pitches they get, and they're still striking out 30% of the time. That's an ugly look. And so that's where the Jays, I think, will have willingness to be patient there. But most likely, if he even produces to the level that he did over the course of his Cardinals career, I think they'd be really happy with that production out of right field. I don't really know how to phrase this one, but I have I have not had the privilege of of watching Kevin Pillar on an everyday basis. I just have too much baseball to cover. You have had more of of that privilege, and if you just look at some of the numbers, like if you look at what UZR, you can you could say that last season Kevin Pillar took a, a fairly meaningful step backward defensively, and defensive runs saved says something similar. Is there? I mean, it, you can look at Pillar, and last season he was able to hit for more power than he ever has before, and now that doesn't make him unique across the baseball landscape. That's sort of the league average that where that's happening. But is there? more room to grow with Kevin Pillar or now that he's he's entering his age 29 season and as we know defense is one of those skills that that peaks early are we are we actually starting to see the diminishment of Kevin Pillar as a quiet but uh but kind of all-around star level center fielder yeah I think for him to maintain the level that he's been at overall he probably does have to take a step forward offensively because his defense in 2015 and 2016 was so good there were, I mean, we've all, we've seen the highlights. He would rob players. He had just this, and still has this kind of relentless approach where he doesn't mind sacrificing his body for dramatic catches. And so we saw that time after time. It led to, of course, a great defensive numbers and, and overall value for Pilar. Last year, you didn't see quite as many of those highlight reel catches. He was still an effective center fielder, but he says he wants to be better this year. He dropped some weight heading into the season, about 15 pounds. So that's something that he's hoping will allow him to move more quickly and, and cover more ground to the point that he can be rangier, maybe even steal some more bases. But that might get him back to the level defensively where he was in 15 and 16. But then you have this question of offense. And if, if he's batting, let's say it's, you know, five, six, 650 times, well, you've got to be productive. And I, and I think that what we've seen so far is that he's kind of been a, well, he, he has been a below average hitter compared to the rest of the league so far. So maybe there's some improvement there. He's made some adjustments this offseason, tried to model himself after Justin Smoke to some extent. But of course, that's you know you hear that this time of year, and then applying that and making that happen against the best pitchers in the world when they're throwing sliders at 91 and you know dropping changeups in there, like that's a really tough thing to do. Jose Batista is still unemployed as we speak. We know what he meant to the Blue Jays fan base. Hard to say he leaves much of a void on the field coming off a sub-replacement level season, but does he leave a void in any other way? Obviously, he was sort of the public international face of the team, but was he an important clubhouse presence as well? I think he was. I mean, to the extent that that I can tell these things, mm-hmm. I, I got the sense that he was you know, very certainly very well respected by his peers, you know, including guys like Marcus Stroman, who he's close with, and many, many other players on the team. I think that when you look at Batista's legacy 
it's like it's it's an incredible legacy in Toronto. He mm-hmm. did so many things. The bat flip alone is is statue worthy. And even beyond that, you have home run titles, you have postseason appearances, you just have this incredible, incredible run of production. But like you said, Ben, last year he was so unproductive that I really think it was time for the Blue Jays to move on from him and find someone who can actually produce more. So I don't think that he's going to be missed in any kind of concrete way in 2018 because the guys he was closest with, they'll still hang out with him. They'll still text him. Um, They can still lean on him. Not quite to the same extent, of course, but he still does have those relationships. And that kind of extends beyond the Toronto Blue Jays to those people as individuals. But yeah, there's no question that you know, there's going to come a time, hopefully, when a lot of Blue Jays fans are in attendance, when the Blue Jays can really recognize what he has meant to this franchise. All right. You listen to the podcast. You know how these things end. Give us the 2018 <laughs> win total for the Toronto Blue Jays. I, uh, you're right. I already have my answer in advance. <laughs> 84 wins. 84, I think, is not too crazy high. Um, I think it reflects that they have some depth behind the roster that you see on MLB depth charts. If you were to just look at that group of 25 players. I think that there is some talent that's going to make its way through the system. I'm not talking Guerrero or Bichette, but I think there's enough there that they can be competitive and in that mix for a wild card. Mm-hmm. By the way, the Blue Jays outdrew every other team in the American League last season, well over 3 million fans, even though they had a lousy season. Obviously, that was kind of a carryover effect from the back-to-back ALCSs, but are they somewhat slumped? proof when it comes to attendance or are they subject to the same vagaries as any other team depending on how the team performs it would be great if they if i could you know sincerely say that i think they're slump proof but looking at those teams from the 08 09 2010 the the 23,000 fans in there to watch the you know raise on a tuesday <laughs> in september yeah. there were a lot of those games and it, you know i i don't think they're entirely slump proof i think now we are looking at a fan base that's really been reinvigorated because yeah. this group is like strong, like people show up. Yeah. All right. Well, Ben Nicholson-Smith is a longtime podcast listener, first-time podcast guest somehow. I'm not sure how it took 1,191 episodes. Sorry. <laughs> but you can read him at Sportsnet. You can find him on Twitter at B. Nicholson-Smith. Thank you very much, Ben. Anytime, guys. Talk to you for episode 2400. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if we can hold you to the anytime thing, maybe we'll have you on for our Rocky segment, too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, honestly, anytime. Um, And I'm a huge fan. So, yeah. So, thanks. I I was really happy to be on with you guys. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So, we'll take another quick break, and we'll be right back to talk about the Pirates with Adam Berry of MLB.com. So, if you have more advice, suggest you just tug it out. Okay, it is time to talk about the Pittsburgh Pirates, who at one point this offseason were the most interesting organization in baseball for reasons that might be good, might be bad. And joining us to talk about the Pirates is MLB.com's Adam Barry. Adam, how are you? I'm doing fine. How are you guys? Doing very well. And uh, if you look at the Pirates, of course, I think before a number of other teams sort of captured the spotlight for, let's say, uh, 
maybe financial efficiency reasons, the Pirates, of course, made news. They traded Andrew McCutcheon. They traded Garrett Cole. They are currently looking at a projected opening day payroll that is down from last season's by about $10 million. It's down from 2016's by about $15 million. And if you listen to the Pirates, of course, they express that even though they made these moves, they still think that they have a competitive roster. So in your estimation, would you say that they still have a competitive roster? I mean, it really depends how you, uh, depends on how you define the word competitive. Uh, I think when we got to camp, David <laughs> Freeze said it very well when he said, screw that word. You know, it's are you contending or are you not? And right now it's hard to see this roster contending without so many guys taking giant steps forward, whether it's Jamison Tyone, and Starling Marte. Gregory Polanco for the third or fourth straight year that we're waiting for that, you know, that year where it all clicks, uh, the number of young starters they have in these trades, they went out and they added a bunch of, or a couple of young relievers, you know, a third baseman in Colin Moran. It's easy to see them being competitive, maybe in the same sense that they were the last two years where, you know, they're kind of in it at the deadline and they kind of buy and kind of sell. Uh, and, you know, maybe in August, you know, they make a little run and they're kind of right there in the middle of a division that hangs back toward them. In that sense, yeah, I can see that. And, you know, there's an argument that the core that they just had wasn't getting it done very clearly. You know, they, they were no longer dealing with star level, elite level Andrew McCutcheon. Uh, Garrett Cole the last two years was a giant step back. So, you know, they're kind of pressing the reset button in a way just without going into that full tear down rebuild that's sort of become in vogue and has led to such success elsewhere. Uh, so they're still kind of trying to walk that middle ground. And I think when you try to do that, that's kind of the result you're going to get in the end. Well, that David Priest quote you just relayed may already have answered the question that I'm about to ask, but I was going to ask you to try to assess the mood in Pirates Camp if there is a way to assess such a, a nebulous thing, because in the wake of the winter trades, there were a lot of public grumblings and sniping by Pirates players who were unhappy with those moves. Now, players are always unhappy when good players get traded from their teams, even if Mm. there is a good reason for those moves. But that may or may not have been the case in the Pirates case. But what is the mood? Are are people dissatisfied? Or is it tough to say that that's true on a team-wide level? Yeah, I think it kind of depends on where you go. The first week that we were in camp, you know, it's just the pitchers there and it's a young staff. They're all about the same age. They all get along extremely well. And that was a very positive vibe. I thought, you know, you come into camp expecting something negative, you know, something like that. But, you know, it's Tyone, it's Musgrove, it's Cool, Trevor Williams, Felipe Rivero, and even Ivan Nova is sort of the veteran of that group being generally positive and optimistic about the way everything was going. And we had a, a three-day span where, David Free shows up and makes those comments that were as critical of the clubhouse culture as anything else, you know, along with the organizational philosophy and everything like that. And then Josh Harrison shows up two days later and says, I still want to be traded. I haven't changed anything, you know, as far as uh, the demand that he made earlier this offseason. But then since then, honestly, it's been fine. I think there was a little bit of airing of grievances that had to take place just for everybody to get their thoughts uh, kind of off their chest. And since then, it's it's been fine. Harrison's been generally the same upbeat guy that he always was. David Freeze is, you know, kind of taking on a leadership role that I don't think he felt comfortable taking with Andrew McCutcheon and Garrett Cole here because it was still kind of their clubhouse. And then, you know, once you get beyond the veteran types, it's a really young, energetic, kind of enthusiastic group, especially on the pitching side. So it hasn't really been the doom and gloom uh, that you would have expected, at least publicly. Sure, you know, these guys wanted to see uh, more moves. They were friends with Garrett Cole. They were friends with Andrew McCutcheon. A lot of them kind of idolized Andrew McCutcheon. So, uh, you know, there's disappointment for sure, but I don't think it's been quite as negative as maybe the atmosphere around the team has been. 
The Pirates were one of the teams under the spotlight from the uh, the recent grievance that identified four teams that uh, the union perceived was not making good enough use of its revenue sharing money. And I promise this isn't going to be 30 minutes of Bob Nutting questions, but it can't be zero minutes of Bob Nutting questions. So Nutting has been in control of the Pirates since 2007. And of course, the team has had its successful window. It's sort of in a transition period now. But what are we what are we supposed to do with a team like this and with an ownership like this? How much of the criticism in your own personal estimation of Bob Nutting's, I guess, expenses on the Pirates are are valid? And how much do you think is people maybe just being dissatisfied because everybody always wants their owners to spend more because it's ultimately not the fans' money? Right. And I think there was a lot less complaining in 2013, 14, and 15, obviously, when they were adding payroll, uh, when the team was winning. And there's been a lot of kind of like retrospective uh, complaining about the payroll and the moves they didn't make back then uh, as it relates to money, uh, just because now that window is closed a little bit. So it's certainly fair when you're looking at a team that's in the bottom uh, five, bottom 10 of payroll. Obviously, there's going to be a certain amount that does go toward ownership and their willingness to spend. But it's also kind of the baseball operations philosophy here is that they're never all in, they're never all out. And that kind of plays into an ownership group that is never going to make that big push uh, financially because they don't think it's in the best interest uh, of the team. You know, that's uh, something we sort of took from Bob Nutting's uh, chat with the media earlier this spring was, uh, you know, they really do view a world where they can contend every year. And I, I just think personally, that's so hard in this market. That's so hard in this era of super teams. You know, there's seven teams or eight teams or however many you want to say that are really all in right now. And you say these teams have a chance to contend where, you know, if you're pushing for 85 wins and you're spending for 85 wins and you're hoarding prospects, you know, or making those moves for 85 wins, you have such a little margin for error against the competition you're going to have with a team like the Cubs, even the Cardinals right now uh, and the other wild card contenders uh, in this league. So uh, it's hard to say how much is of that is nutting and his, uh, ownership and uh, payroll philosophy and how much of that is sort of this baseball operations thing Neil Huntington has stressed where uh, you're never pushing all in so you never have to pull all out again Uh, yeah (laughs) let's say they wanted to they wanted to pull that you know they wanted to push in they wanted to make that that big push like uh like the Royals did a few years ago and then they have to to scale it back how far would the scale back be or how uh, you know how long would the rebuild be and how long would Pittsburgh be willing to tolerate so it's kind of a I don't want to say self-fulfilling, but a little bit the way they kind of feed off each other. It's hard to assign the blame to any one place. So I guess you you sort of addressed this with your answer there. But, you know, Huntington has been around. That front office has been around for less time than Nutting has been in charge of the team. But how would you divvy up the responsibility for this? Like if if the front office wanted to push in and uh, invest, I don't know, 40, 50 more million dollars in a present day roster, do you think that ownership would be willing to do that? Or is this just a a happy coincidence where it's the front office and the owner are of similar minds? I'll put it this way. Neil Huntington came out very clearly and it said multiple times that they had the ability to keep last year's roster and therefore keep last year's payroll about in place. He has never at any point said they had the ability to add to last year's roster. So I think in that sense, yes, it would probably shift over to, to management side as far as ownership goes. Whereas I think, you know, if I don't know if there would have been enough money, I guess, necessarily for baseball ops to improve last year's team uh, in a way that would have been feasible to contend. Of course, the Pirates never had very high payrolls, even when they were winning, and you can win with somewhat low payrolls if you can keep the young talent flowing and keep developing players, and maybe that's been a a bit more difficult for the Pirates to do since they've been good and they haven't been drafting as high as they once were, but... 
What's the state of the system? I think according to baseball prospectus, at least, it has declined a bit, and maybe that's partly because of some graduations, but it's sort of middle of the pack now, and it's tough to contend if you have imposed the limitations that the Pirates have financially on themselves if you cannot keep that talent flowing. So what is the outlook for the system and reinforcements on the way? Yeah, I think that's a really fair way to put it is that if you're not going to spend on stars, you need to draft and develop stars or, you know, bring them to the international system. Mm-hmm. And they have a couple of guys. I think, like you said, the overall decline is probably due to the people that they've graduated, the Josh Bells, the Tyler Glasnow's of the world. They still have Austin Meadows as probably their top position player prospect. He, to me, still looks, looks like a potential, you know, kind of star level impact guy if he can stay healthy. Uh, which has been the issue. Uh, he's up to AAA, should make his debut at some point this year. You know, he was expected to be the guy who replaced Andrew McCutcheon in the long run. And uh, I think sort of the, the fact that he wasn't ready to do so speaks to the overall difficulty they've had in developing sure thing prospects. You know, Tyler Glasnow didn't pan out. He was supposed to be sort of that replacement for Garrett Cole. And he's right now basically competing for a spot in the bullpen. But, you know, they have another guy, Mitch Keller, is the top overall prospect. He's an interesting, maybe a safer thing, kind of along the lines of Jameson Tyone. They have a bunch of shortstops, uh, Kevin Newman and Cole Tucker. Tucker looks maybe like a, a high-end contributor at some point. Uh, Newman could settle into more of a utility role. And all these guys are kind of close, which ultimately goes back to the, the philosophy they took this offseason where they didn't want to tear it down because they say, okay, we have a young core with you know, like all the guys that I've mentioned so far, along with these you know, Meadows and AAA, Keller and AA, and people that they think could help you know, their next contender, their next really, truly good team, uh, not too far away. So there's talent in there. I don't know if it's enough to uh, make up for what they won't uh, pay for in free agency, although we've seen the merits of that strategy this last offseason. But there is certainly help on the way, along with all the young guys that they've already graduated uh, to Pittsburgh at this point. When I look at the Pirates of right now and the Pirates of the nearer term future, the the name I keep coming back to is Glass now because on the on the one hand in the in the majors he's been just absolutely terrible and even right now his spring training ERA is literally 11.74. On the other hand, he does have 3 walks and 13 strikeouts and 72/3 innings. Anyway, Glass now last year went down to AAA, changed his mechanics, changed some things about his approach and he was fantastic. And then he came up At the end of the year, maybe he was tired, I don't know, but he was bad in a few blips, but he's only 24 years old. He throws almost 100 miles per hour. He gets this extension so that his pitches look even faster than they are. He seems to have a good fastball, seems to have a good curveball. Have you seen him this spring locating his pitches? Not consistently enough to be the guy that they need him to be. No, I think that's still the issue. Uh, last year, the problem when he came up the first time is the stuff wasn't even there. He slowed down his delivery, uh, just trying to improve his command, and it didn't work out. He lost that quick arm action. He lost the stuff. He lost the consistent release point, and it just did not look, it not, did not look like the guy that we'd been promised, essentially. So then he went down. He made those changes he talked about, came back up, and the stuff returned, but the command didn't, and that's still sort of been the issue this spring, you know, he'll work around the zone a little bit more, uh, which is a good sign. And you'll see sequences where it looks brilliant. You know, he hit a hundred in his first spring training start. Uh, you know, the curveballs look really good at times. The changeup, which has sort of been that missing link, has looked pretty effective sometimes. But then there will just be entire innings, sequences against hitters where it looks like he has no idea where it's going. And, uh, you know, I don't know if that's going to be a thing that sticks soon. They always point to, you know, kind of the long-limbed 
tall guys like Randy Johnson saying it took him some time to develop. So, you know, it's certainly too quick to to give up on a guy like Glass now, just given the potential that he has. But I think Clint Hurdle kind of alluded to it earlier this spring. At some point, you do want to see the results to go along with the stuff. Uh, and I think the fact that they're not giving him a spot in the rotation coming out of camp sort of speaks to the fact that, uh, you know, he's going to have to develop uh, even further before they trust him with that. And it might have to take place in the bullpen uh, come opening day. We mentioned David Freeze. I believe he's the only player on the Pirates' active or 40-man roster to have been acquired via free agency, which makes them the only team with one free agent on their entire roster in the majors. So was there someone out there whom fans were advocating for, you know, not necessarily at the top of the market, but just a a useful role player even who would fill some spot that right now looks like a potential replacement level position? I mean, if the Pirates are going to make even a faint at contention or competitiveness, then was there a place where they could have, should have upgraded or where fans believe that they could have or should have upgraded? That's a funny day to ask that, actually, because I'm at Yankees camp uh, right now, and we just spoke to Neil Walker, who is from <laughs> Pittsburgh, as you may have heard in some of the coverage around him uh, during his Pirates days. Yes. And you know what? At the beginning of the, the offseason, they could have used a third baseman. They could have split a full-time third baseman to you know sort of relieve David Freeze. Could have moved Josh Harrison over there, put Neil Walker at second, could have you know moved Walker around a second or third. And then you see the deal he ultimately gets, and Walker told us just now that he did not hear from the Pirates once this offseason. So that's the kind of guy where you think, all right, if you're if you are looking for incremental upgrades, why not try there? And there's some stuff about the way that relationship ended when he was here that maybe would have prevented that uh, on either side. But you know there were outfielders out there who might have helped him, and I'd argue, you know, they got a guy in Corey Dickerson who I think they liked more than any of the free agent outfielders in their price range. It's you know there's some relievers out there that they could have maybe gone after just to you know fill that Juan Nicasio, Tony Watson spot. Ultimately, they they believe they addressed some of those needs through the trades that they made. You know, rather than going out and getting a free agent uh, infielder, they got Colin Moran, who's going to be their everyday third baseman, and is a guy with I think a lot of untapped upside. Kind of going back to something I think Jeff wrote about recently, and this sort of seeing potential not based off what a guy has done, but what he can do. They see that in Colin Moran. They see that in Michael Feliz uh, in the bullpen. They see that in Kyle Crick, uh, also a reliever who was in the McCutcheon trade, and uh, in Joe Musgrove, who showed some really impressive stuff in, in the bullpen last year for the Astros, and now they're going to put him back in the rotation. So, uh, you know, there's there's definitely guys that could have helped them and would have helped them, you know, free agent outfielders and infielders and a starting pitcher or reliever or two, and they just feel that they addressed the needs uh, by trading Colin McCutcheon at the same time, which is why they're, again, they didn't add to that core. They didn't, you know, take it away completely. So they're just kind of still stuck in that middle ground. There's been a lot going on, and I've been trying to figure out the Pirates' depth chart over the course of the offseason, and in left field alone, there's been Adam Frazier, Austin Meadows, Bryce Brentz, Daniel Navas been around. I think, I don't remember if Michael Saunders was there, but I have a... Michael, yeah, <laughs> Michael Saunders spent a glorious day and a half in Pirates camp. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's Jordan Luplo. I don't know if it's Luplow, but Luplo, who had a very strong... 2017 and and then Corey Dickerson wound up on the Pirates so he's he's made this easier because now Corey Dickerson looks like the clear starter 
worse news for Bryce Brents, I guess. But the Pirates and the Rays operate very similarly to an almost obnoxious degree. And while the Rays determined that Corey Dickerson was not really worth their time and the money, uh, as you just pointed out, the Pirates are quite pleased to have Corey Dickerson starting in an outfield corner for now. So what do you think would be the explanation for, for why the Pirates see Dickerson as, as better than Tampa Bay did? Because these are two organizations you're inclined to uh, extend the benefit of the doubt, but clearly they don't quite see eye to eye here. Right. I, I think the for the Pirates, just based on the situation they were in, where they thought they were going to have Daniel Nava in kind of not a true platoon, but you know, able to split time with an Adam Frazier, a Jordan Luplo, a Michael Saunders for those five minutes he was here. You know, it made some sense that they didn't need a, a full-time guy that, you know, they could mix and match a little bit and make something work, which is why they didn't go out and sign a free agent to potentially get in the way of Austin Meadows when he was ready. But they didn't have to add money uh, in the deal where they got Dickerson. They they sent uh, Daniel Hudson to the Rays in part of that deal. And what they got back in return is a full-time outfielder, a guy that they can just send out there every day. They like the power, especially the left-handed power. If you look at some of the moves uh, they did make, uh, you know, some of the stuff they're banking on. Moran, they like some power from the left side. They like Dickerson uh, from the left side at PNC Park where right-handed power is suppressed. But, you know, you can play a little bit better over the Clemente wall. They, they like the outfield defense more than the Rays certainly seem to. Uh, they believe in some of the changes that Dickerson made to his body over the last two off-seasons as far as just getting in better shape. Uh, they're also pretty confident, as you would think the Rays would have been with Kevin Kiermeyer next to him, uh, and the fact that they'll be able to send out Starling Marte uh, in center next to Dickerson and left. So, uh, more than anything, it's just it's a guy with a little bit of a track record. Uh, they think he comes in with an edge, one of those intangible things. Uh, human analytics, as Clint Hurdle likes to say, uh, that he's going to be motivated. Um, and again, it's a, a guy that, let's say it doesn't pan out, Austin Meadows, their top, their top outfield prospect, could be ready later this season. They can move on, move forward. But in this kind of still trying to contend situation that they're in, uh, they like sort of the upside that they see in Dickerson. It looked a few years ago like the Pirates were about to have the best outfield in baseball for the foreseeable future, and it never really quite came together the way that it looked like it could have. Polanco didn't really progress, and McCutcheon began to decline, and then Marte missed most of a season last year. So two-thirds of that outfield are still around now, and is there still hope that Polanco can be better than what he's been? He's 26 years old. There's, in theory, still room for improvement, but he's just sort of stagnated offensively. And then Marte, of course, looked like he was probably the best player on the Pirates heading into last year, and then obviously got suspended and didn't really play like his usual self once he returned. So what's the confidence level in both of those guys maybe having bounce back years? Yeah, I think Marte, they expect to get right back to what he was from, you know, 12, 13 to 16. Uh, You know, an athletic defender, not a guy who's going to hit a ton of home runs, hit for a ton of power, but his speed's going to play. He'll hit for a high average. He'll get on base to a certain extent. I think they'll put him uh, pretty close to the top of the lineup and just sort of let him be athletic up there. They're very high on the outfield defense. That's one area where they believe they've improved uh, heading into this year is the fact that you're going to have Marte in center instead of McCutcheon, uh, even though McCutcheon did get better last year than he was in 16. Uh, so, uh, and I, I think there's a little bit of lack of belief in, in Pittsburgh in Marte, but I think just based off his track record, the guy that he was, you can expect something similar uh, heading into this year. Polanco is the interesting one. Like I said earlier, we've been waiting for three or four years for that breakout. And, you know, you look at the end of season numbers and you don't see it, but Go back and look at what he did in the first half of 2016. He was their best player. Uh, the swing changes that he made, our friend Travis Sawchick wrote about him uh, at length. Uh, 
uh, when he was here the first uh, first month of 2016 when the Pirates extended him. He looked like a different hitter completely. Uh, and I think you've seen that swing at times, but the problem since then has been health. He was not healthy the second half of 2016 with knee and shoulder injuries. He was never healthy, I don't think, for a day last season from the start. He wasn't able to play uh, the outfield on opening day, hit the DL two or three times with hamstring injuries. Uh, he was just never healthy. So then he sort of rededicated himself this offseason, focused on getting more uh, lean and athletic instead of trying to build up muscle like he did last offseason, thinking he had to hit for power. And he's coming to camp and he's looked great. I mean, that's a guy that maybe I'm letting the optimism of spring training affect me, if you can believe that. <laughs> but he looks good. He looks like the guy that we've kind of been promised. And I think if he's able to stay healthy, and I understand that is a, a skill uh, to a certain extent, then uh, that that's still a guy that you can build around. And obviously they're very committed to that at this point. He's one of the guys they've got locked up for the long term. So uh, I think there's still hope for, you know, two thirds of the dream outfield because you're right. It never panned out. I, I'm old enough to remember when the Marlins and the Pirates were debating who had the better young outfield. <laughs> Here we are. And neither one still exists in its current form and previous form. Yeah. It was always going to be Mike Trout and whoever was beside him. That was just kind of the, <laughs> the default. So I, I understand that this, might be a difficult question. I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but between Austin Meadows, he's been the hype guy for a long time. And, and Jordan Luplau, to my knowledge, has pretty much never been the hype guy. But I mean, here's a guy who's he's 24 years old and he's hit at every level. And honestly, until probably this offseason, I didn't really know much about him at all. But last year he was outstanding in double A. He was outstanding in a, a shorter amount of time in triple A. Got up to the Pirates, didn't hit a whole lot in a, a brief stint. But if you had to guess over the next five years between Meadows and Liplau, the, the hype guy and the non-hype guy, who do you think is more likely to make a big contribution to this team? I'd still go with Meadows just based on the raw ability. I think health could be an issue for him uh, still in the long term, just based off uh, how it's kept him off the field recently. But honestly, the fact that he had the number of setbacks that he's had and he's still got the AAA at 23 years old is speaks to just the talent and the Pirates' belief in him. I think he'll get every chance to start every day whenever he is ready. Uh, Luplo, I think they probably see more as a fourth outfielder, maybe maybe a platoon type guy, uh, but they're certainly high on him. I mean, he has a chance to make the team right now. Uh, probably more likely he gets sent down to AAA since uh, Bryce Brents is out of options. But yeah, Luplo is not a guy who just sort of came onto the scene for them last year, even though I, I think it was certainly the case for uh, for me as well, just as sort of recognizing him as a potential contributor. But uh, I'd still take Meadows in the long run. But, you know, they they definitely like Luplo as well. We talked to Travis about this in the wake of the McCutcheon trade, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts too. During their period of success, it seemed like the Pirates had a system that they could apply to a lot of players and bring in guys from other organizations and make them better or you know put them in position to succeed, whether it was with the shifting or the sinkers and two-seamers or the pitching inside or Ray Searidge seemingly being able to fix all those pitchers and being able to acquire pitchers who would be willing to let Ray Searidge fix them. Is there still a belief, either internally or externally, that the Pirates have that sort of edge, that they can acquire undervalued players and make them better than they've been? Or has the rest of the league just caught up to the Pirates in most of those respects? Yeah, I think the league is definitely caught up to them uh, in a lot of regards, uh, as far as just the amount of technology and, and you know the impact that it has on their evaluation of guys and the, the changes that they try to make. You know, it's it's not exactly a, a revolutionary idea the last however many years that 
you should throw down in the zone or you now it's obviously gone the opposite way yeah. or you should try to, you know, shift your infield. That, that's a place where they were able to exploit that uh, market inefficiency, I guess, for lack of a better term. And now everybody's caught up to them. You know, the Dodgers have the, the money and the prospects and uh, the, the brain power in the front office. Uh, you know, they're, the Cubs within their division are the same way. So uh, they're trying to look for different ways to exploit those advantages. You know, I think health and uh, athletic training has been a big focus for them. That's an area they expanded uh, this offseason, kind of behind the scenes. They've refocused a little bit of their efforts in, in Latin America, trying to go back to that sort of, you know, scouting, drafting, and developing type of uh, system that they, they had some success with, uh, you know, earlier in this decade. But as far as just the numbers go, it is harder to find a space. They expanded their analytics staff again this offseason, I think just looking for any sort of market that they can exploit. Because, you know, the thing is that reclamation projects used to be cheap, and that's well, in previous off seasons, that was no longer the case. Uh, so they had a hard time keeping up with that. And then, uh, you know, it, it ultimately comes down to their core, I think, uh, more than anything. And so that's where they're, that's where they're, most of their focus needs to be is getting the most out of the guys that they have, which I think explains sort of the, the renewed focus on athletic training and uh, analytics. Yeah, the Pirates is, is sort of part of their system. They were... What there was the talk about how they would throw inside the most. This is this is going back a few years, but they would try to pound hitters inside with sinkers, and of course they'd be a pretty fastball heavy organization. And and what we've seen league wide the last few years is that pitchers have generally moved away from the fastball, such that the Pirates have been almost exceptional in their fastball tendencies in the last few years. Now everything in baseball is probably pretty cyclical and there's a point at which there will not be enough fastballs and then hitters won't be prepared for fastballs and then all of a sudden the Pirates can be back ahead of the trend again but has there been any talk of this team moving away from its fastball first tendency or are they going to stick to what the plan has been for a number of years? No it's been pretty much the same this spring even hearing it from Ivan Nova two days ago I believe it was that you know he's working on throwing inside more than he did because he thought that was the that was the problem. Uh, last year when he had that rough second half and you know they are definitely open uh, to the idea of the, the high fastball and things like that but you don't hear anything as far as you know an Astros type approach uh, where it's going to be off-speed predominant or you know heavy off-speed stuff because uh, this is still a, a fastball team uh, I think it's a fastball pitching coach with Ray Searage you know they've talked more about uh, the change up and you know setting guys uh, up with the fastball and using that as a change of speed and but for the most part, their their philosophy is still the same uh, overriding. You know, it's pitch inside, it's pitch down before you pitch up, you know, in and not out. So they've more or less kept the same thing. You've heard people like Jamison Tyone come out and talk about the four scene uh, up in the zone and the impact that can have. I think Chad Cool, when he kind of reinvented himself last year, uh, showed the merits of that. And Trevor Williams, who was maybe their most effective starter uh, throughout last season, was a good example of of mixing it up, uh, you know, as far as breaking the the trend of what they had been uh, in previous years while still incorporating the, the core beliefs of their philosophy. But for the most part, it, it's the same. And I think it falls upon the, uh, you know, the pitchers themselves or maybe Francisco Cervelli behind the plate to to call for individual audibles there. I was uh, I was going to ask you a Colin Moran question, just what you've seen in the spring, and but I thought you know we could we could go with something more interesting. Here's the thing, Moran, he could be good. We'll see. He's young. So John <laughs> Jaso is a sort of a, a podcast. I don't know hero. He's a. Uh, we talked about Jaso a fair amount the past few months. He brought to our uh, awareness the expression such as baseball and such as life. And John Jaso has disappeared because he wanted to go sail the world. Who, if anyone, is going to replace whatever John Jaso's role was with the pirate scene? Because it feels like he was he was maybe four standard deviations separated from the baseball mean. Man, I don't know if anybody will have the zen of John Jaso <laughs> uh, on this roster. 
I think there's some quirky personalities in there with uh, Stephen Brault and Trevor Williams, noted uh, fellow podcast host. Uh, so they have definitely the personality to keep it light and keep it interesting and, and say some things that'll catch you off guard. So, so those guys would probably be my two picks. But while we're on the topic of JSO, you guys will appreciate this. I had an idea heading into spring training that like I would try to ask around the clubhouse and see who's heard from JSO and you know would lead on this wild chase and we'd find out that JSO was on an island somewhere, you know, living in his boat off the shore. And I thought, all right, I'll go. This will be fun. You know, we'll set this up as a little narrative. Second person I walked up to said, oh, we saw him in St. Petersburg last weekend. So <laughs> maybe not as mysterious, you know, the mystique of John JSO, maybe not quite what we were led to believe it was. <laughs> All right. Well, can you give us a projected win total for the Pirates in 2018? I'm going to go with 76 wins right in between where they were the last two years. I would not be surprised if they came out and they won 81, finished 500. Above that, if the young guys develop, I wouldn't be surprised if they run into some troubles and finish in the low 70s. But based off kind of the theme of this conversation, right in the middle ground seems a a pretty safe place to go. So I'm going to go with uh, 76. Yeah. All right. Well, David Fries will be very sorry to hear that. So you can read Adam's coverage all season long on MLB.com. You can find him on Twitter at Adam D. Barry. Adam, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thank you. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. Five listeners who have recently signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to keep the podcast going include Jay Austin, William Dennis, Charles Midkiff, Colin Souter, and Ben Coomer. Thanks to all of you. You can also rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. Please keep your questions and comments coming for me and Jeff via email at podcast at or via the Patreon messaging system. We have just three team preview podcasts remaining after which you will be fully prepared for the season. That timing works out well because opening day will be immediately after that, almost like we planned it that way. As always, I will remind you, please go to banishedtothepen.com, the sister site started by Effectively Wild listeners, where they are previewing each team that we're podcasting about in written form. And remember, if you're interested in listening to any old Effectively Wild episodes, please consider contributing to the Effectively Wild wiki project. The crowdsourcing efforts are proceeding well. You can find a link to the wiki on the show page at Fangraphs or in the files section of the Facebook group, where you can also sign up to claim an episode to recap and summarize hundreds of episodes already done so it's going to be a great resource when we finally get it completed thanks to everyone who is helping out with that we hope you have a wonderful weekend our next preview podcast will feature the minnesota twins and the texas rangers and we will be back to bring that to you early next week three days to get it on and three days to get it off and three more days to die and i'm six feet down and i'm asking the good lord up in heaven 